0: Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're all doing great. In this episode, I'm talking with Laura Shifter. Laura is a senior fellow in the Energy and Environment Program at the Aspen Institute, and she's a lecturer of education at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. She's the lead of the K-12 Climate Action Initiative being led by the Aspen Institute. We talk the state of climate education in the nation's schools and how the work she's doing with K-12 Climate Action will lead to more climate education, which in turn will hopefully lead to more climate action. Right now, climate education is inconsistent across the country, and they are hoping to bring it into more classrooms. Also, stick around. I have a short interview with Mahiro Shimano. Mahiro has recently joined America DAPS as the intern. She'll share what she's doing with the podcast and some of the environmental journalism she's been involved in. Very excited to have Mahiro on board. Okay, upcoming episodes. Returning to the show is Dr. Amy Brady, and we check in on the latest with climate fiction or cli-fi. Always a treat to have Amy on. Also, the third episode in a three-part series with the Trustees of Reservations in Massachusetts, where we close out the series discussing coastal adaptation on Nord Point Beach on Martha's Vineyard. Some great stuff coming your way. Okay, Adapters, let's join in with Laura Shifter of K-12 Climate Action. Hey, Adapters, today I have an exciting episode. I'm talking with Laura Shifter. Laura is a senior fellow in the Energy and Environment Program at the Aspen Institute, and she's a lecturer of education at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Doug. It's great to be on. Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. So we're going to be talking about climate change and education at the K-12 to level. Now, I was thinking of how this conversation was going to unfold, but you know what? Let's just kind of give some context. You work at two very different places. Could you give us a little background of that?
1: Yeah, so I have for a long time been a lecturer on education at Harvard's Education School, and that's actually the background where I've spent most of my time is working on education policy with Harvard and teaching students there. And about eight months ago then, I joined the Aspen Institute with their energy and environment program to lead a new initiative launched by Aspen called K-12 Climate Action.
0: And could you give a little bit more information on the Aspen Institute? I always hear about it and they seem like they have all these really cool panels and they get these really great speakers and such. But what are they really?
1: Yeah. So the Aspen Institute is really driven by this idea that we can bring people together to have deeper conversations about issues and kind of surface new ideas and new thinking to really help advance more equitable society in the future. And so the idea behind the Aspen Institute is really trying to bring different people and voices together to come up with different ideas and solutions to help society advance.
0: So what is this K-12 climate action? That's what we're going to be talking about today.
1: So the K-12 climate action initiative is a new initiative with the energy and environment program at Aspen. And our goal is really to unlock the power of the education sector to be a force towards climate action solutions and environmental justice. And what we're doing is we're launching a commission to learn about the needs and opportunities to move the education sector towards climate action and building a coalition of organizations and people who believe schools should go in this direction and want to support schools in that work.
0: So the makeup of this initiative, I guess you're at the center of it, kind of driving it forward, but there's a commission too, right?
1: Yeah, so I'm leading it from a staff-level perspective, and we have a commission who we've really brought together a diverse group of people to help lead this initiative, and co-chairing the initiative is former Secretary of Education John King. He was Secretary of Education under the Obama administration, and Governor Christine Todd Whitman. She is our other co-chair. She's a former governor of New Jersey, and she was EPA administrator under the Bush administration. And then we have about 20 other commissioners who come from a variety of experiences and expertise. Uh, we have the superintendent of San Antonio Unified School District is a part of this work. We have the president and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morial, who's a part of this work. Um, we have some great youth leaders and, and students who are a part of this work. And, and we're just really excited to kind of bring these different voices and perspectives together to come together around some policy recommendations about what the education sector can do.
0: So you're sitting on the bus and some guy just turns to you and he heard something about this and he just asks you, why do we need this?
1: You know, I think the reason why we need this initiative, there are kind of two big driving reasons why we need this initiative. Our schools are a large public sector with a significant environmental footprint. Schools are among the largest energy consumers of public sector buildings. And there are over 98,000 public schools across the country. And all of those schools have significant amount of energy, transportation and food needs. Actually, our school buses, there are 480,000 school buses across the country. And that's the largest mass transit fleet in the country. So there's a tremendous amount of need to support our schools in moving towards climate action. But there's also a huge opportunity. If we start to really think about what we can do to support our education system in this way, we're not only going to be transitioning a large public sector towards more sustainable practices, but we can also use that as a learning opportunity. Uh, There are over 50 million children enrolled in our public schools across this country. It's almost one in every six Americans. And that can be a real opportunity to help our children and youth start thinking about things in a different way in terms of humans' interactions with the environment, what the opportunities are to address climate change, how we understand climate change and its impacts on our society.
0: So let's talk about the lay of the land right now. And and what I mean is climate change is being taught pretty inconsistently across the country. And so I know you can't really take a deep dive in this, but obviously there's a demand for what you're doing. What's going on out there?
1: First of all, one thing that's really important to say up front is that actually teaching climate change in schools is something that most people want. So when this issue has been polled, it's found that the majority of Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, want students to learn about climate change in schools. So that's fairly consistent. I think what we've seen in terms of how it's taught has been evolving over time. And and one of the ways that we can look at the opportunities around schools teaching climate change is through something called state standards. And what state standards are, the expectations that each state sets in terms of what students should know and be able to do across different subjects. Obviously, one of the places that that climate change is most included in state standards is science standards, but looking at how it is included in the state standards is one place to give us a little bit of information um, about where climate change might be taught.
0: And so I'm sure part of what you're doing is just probably compiling a lot of the existing resources out there. So if you if you look at it, I mean, this is something people have been trying to do for a while. And I'm focusing on science myself in National Academy of Sciences. There are a lot of groups out there that have created great resources, but they're not necessarily used and they're not necessarily picked up at the level that they're hoping. So is that a big part of what you're doing is just figuring out what's out there right now?
1: Yeah, so that is our first step right now is doing a bit of a landscape and seeing what's out there right now, what states are doing. Obviously, just looking at state standards in particular, that's not going to necessarily tell you exactly what's going on in the classroom because the state standards set the expectation, but curriculum and what's taught in schools is then often determined across different levels, whether that be the state, local districts teachers in the classroom. And so there is kind of this need to look, okay, well, what are states doing first? And then we can kind of go from there to think about, well, what are districts doing? Where are there gaps? And where are there opportunities for policies to help support schools in doing this work more? And and really thinking about how we teach climate change for all students.
0: All right. And so that's probably a big issue there is i don't think a lot of people really understand how we set our educational standards you know the feds actually are pretty weak in re- regards to educational standards and i don't know if maybe you want to kind of even explain that and you just use that example you could do a survey of the states and say you know what these states are doing really well but then you drill down okay to the city level and then the county level and you get down to the school level and a lot of times it comes down to maybe what a teacher's comfortable teaching especially with a subject that might kind of borderline be an elective. And so getting a real sense of like how many students are actually getting exposed to this must be really hard.
1: Yeah, it's really hard to kind of piece that down. We actually have two youth perspectives on the commission and actually hearing their stories growing up. One has grown up in Michigan. The other student has grown up in Alaska. And and hearing them talk about their experiences within the education system, they've had to Learn, they're both climate activists and they've had to learn about climate change through Finding information themselves, you know, they have not had robust exposure to it within their school systems. And so they've had to rely a lot on piecing information together. And that's, that's one thing that we don't know. Even if they are in states where this might be in the standards, there might be a a disconnect between what is in the standard and what is taught in the schools. And ultimately what you need to do is figure out why that disconnect is occurring. Is it occurring because teachers feel uncomfortable, like you said? Or is it occurring because teachers don't have the appropriate support or professional development? Is it occurring because in their local district, the curriculum is not completely aligned and and they don't know the best ways to teach it? And if those are the, the gaps that are occurring or the barriers, then there are remedies that policymakers can seek and identify to help uh, address those gaps, whether it be about thinking About opportunities to provide teachers with more professional development supports for their school district or whether it's thinking about even our teacher preparation system and how we might build more awareness about teaching things around sustainability through our teacher preparation system so that teachers entering the school feel more prepared to do this work.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna give you a little anecdote. i I have two sons, and I was <laughs> quizzing my son this morning as I was preparing for this episode, my sixth grader son. and I'm like, it, I should, probably should have asked this a long time ago. I'm just and I, asked, have you ever learned anything about climate change? Are your teachers bringing that up? And he, he's a bit of an airhead sometimes, but he was just like, think- yeah, my science teacher said that the scientists think that, you know, we're destined to the world will be flooded. And I just was like, what are you talking? And I couldn't quite get the right ter- phrasing out of him. But there was obviously not a lot. And I didn't get a chance to talk to my high school son. And he's in a bunch of AP classes. But it, it wasn't great. So that's one anecdote of, you know, he's already into sixth grade. And there's really not that much exposure. And, I'm, of course, he hears a lot through me. But anyway, it, <laughs> it, it's a big task.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is a big task. And I think what, what we need to look towards is finding those places that are doing it well and really learning from the work that's going on that is successful. There's an organization called the Alliance for Climate Education, and that's actually a youth-driven movement where they've really worked to produce information and curriculum that can be integrated into schools or just even accessed by youth across the country by watching a short video where they work to really break down the information in a way to help children and youth make sense of it and understand how it relates to their daily lives.
0: You know, I asked you earlier, why do we need to do this? And I want to read something to you. And this was from a case study. And this is quoted here. That's according to Eugene Cordero, a climate science professor at San Jose State University, who in a recent study surveyed students who took a one-year course that focused on community engagement, lasting environmental behavior, and climate solutions, among other topics. Cordero found that five years after graduating from the course, the average student had shifted his or her everyday behaviors to reduce his or her carbon footprint by 2.86 tons per year. So that's great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think um, there was a study that came out this past winter. I feel like time's a bit of a blur right now, frankly, but that actually identified education as one major social tipping point to help our society really tackle climate change. And it's been an underutilized tipping point. And one of the things that we see also that researchers are identified with, that when we teach children and youth about these issues, that there's a spillover effect to parents and communities. So if children and youth are coming home and talking about what they're learning in school, whether that be the climate science itself or just even things like the fact that they compost in school they bring this information home and you find that then parents become more aware of it and parents become more concerned or parents start adopting practices that are more sustainable like composting for example
0: Let's talk about state standards because that's going to be important you know driving a lot of you know school individual school behavior so you're involved with a, a new report that's coming around about state standards could you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah, so one of the things that we've done to really help identify a landscape of what's going on in schools across the country is is we are releasing a state policy landscape that looks at efforts for state policy to support schools in moving towards climate action. And we've we've looked at this across different elements of the schools' work. So we we have sections on energy in schools, we have sections on transportation, but we do look at this section on state standards that breaks down where states across the country have included climate change in their state standards. And we focus that in particular in looking at the science standards that states have adopted, kind of what, what language is in the science standards? Are they teaching climate change as connected to human activity and, and how states have incorporated that into their work? And we also look at the inclusion of climate change and social studies standards. I think one of the things that's important to know is that climate change is not just isolated as a science issue. It, it actually has impacts across a lot of disciplines. And there are a lot of states that are considering the impact of climate change through their social studies standards as well.
0: And could you, and I think thought this was important, is that could you distinguish between state standards and then the curricula? What would those are two different things?
1: Yeah. So, state standards are really the goals and expectations for what children should know and be able to do. So, those are really, they're established generally by the State Board of Education, and they go through a process of being developed. And they outline for each grade, for instance, what they expect students to know and be able to do within that grade, within that subject. What curriculum is, is curriculum is actually what's taught in schools. So, you know, the standards really establish that goal. And then the curriculum is what teachers and educators use to help children achieve that goal. And curriculum is supposed to be aligned to the state standard. And those are supposed to be connected to ensure that children can achieve those standards. But it is important to know that that those things are distinct in the way that they operate.
0: And we we can't look at the charts that were in that, but it it has things like, you know, the state teaches climate change. And I think there's a category that they teach climate change and they mention that humans are responsible for. I mean, these are very important distinctions. And then I think there was another third category, but there's other multiple charts. But that's obviously going to be very revealing on how states are prioritizing climate change.
1: Yeah, it is. One of the things that we've seen there's there's a group of states that have come together that use something called the Next Generation Science Standards. These are a set of standards that have really been built in collaboration across different states and with the science community. And those really they've integrated a lot of the principles around what the science community and educators have identified as as climate literacy. Um, And those integrate how they think students should be able to understand climate change very effectively. There are about 29 states, I believe it's 20, have specifically adopted the next generation science standards. And then another nine states have adopted essentially the same thing as the next generation science standards in terms of that level of specificity on how climate change is taught how it's taught in terms of human activity, and really utilizing what educators and scientists say is the best approach for teaching that information.
0: Okay, so you could have a state or a school board that's very open to teaching these things, and you have probably policy people, staffers that incorporate these things, but Ultimately, how do you ground truth? I mean, those sort of the different categories. It's at the end of the day, what do those students really know about that? And if you look at math, you know, that you, you can ground truth, I guess, with standardized testing and such. Is there any sort of equivalent with climate education where you can say and that one survey I just mentioned about like how they used their carbon footprint was reduced? There's a way of kind of ground truthing it. Is this part of the process that you're involved in?
1: So we are not currently looking at kind of assessing student knowledge across the country. I think that's one thing in terms of the commission's work ahead of them to learn about the needs and opportunities to engage schools in this work. That is something that could come out of the commission's learning is, is there a real need for us to determine not just, you know, setting the expectation in terms of what we think students should know, but have a real measure to say, well, what do students know about climate literacy? I think that is something that, you know, could come out of this conversation and the process that we're going on. But it's not necessarily a direct mandate for the commission currently. I think it's a little bit more open in terms of what the commission will ultimately dictate It dictate are the policy recommendations
0: that should come out of this. Right, proper response. I get it. Um, <laughs> let's go back to w- what you're doing, your 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 day job. And so, there's a listening tour that's coming up, right? What What are you hoping to accomplish with the listening tour? And you've broken it down into different topics and such.
1: Yeah. So, what we're hoping to do with the listening tour, the commissioners, the people that we have on board in the commission are are real leaders um, in their fields. But they haven't necessarily worked at this intersection directly. And so one of the things that we really want to come out of the listening session is an opportunity for these leaders within the education space, within the environment space, to learn more about what the opportunities are, the commission will go on, they'll, we will hold six virtual listening sessions. Each of these will be around particular topics and that'll include things around what schools can do to reduce their carbon footprint, what schools can do to adapt and build resiliency, and what schools can do to teach about climate change, what schools can do in terms of helping prepare people for the economy ahead and how things are going to change as a result of climate change. And so we we will create different panels and bring in experts, bring in students, bring in parents to talk about how they're experiencing this on the ground and help use that learning as an opportunity for the commission to develop this action plan and determine what policy recommendations are needed.
0: Well, I think the survey you did about standards would hopefully be helpful in recruiting the kind of people you want, like participating. And I guess what I mean is the ones that scored really poorly in regards to how much they're really doing in climate change. It's like, okay, let's invite them. And it won't be easy to necessarily get them to participate, but is that part of the strategy?
1: You know, I think our strategy is really thinking about a way that we can bring people into the conversation broadly and and enable people to see opportunities to move schools in this way in a way that feels good for them. So if the argument to bring people on board with some of this work might be around, you know, if if we do increase the use of solar energy on schools, for instance, that can actually reduce the overhead costs for school districts and save taxpayer dollars uh, down the road. If that helps bring somebody in to see the potential of doing this work we would be encouraged by that as well and then hopefully have some of these these difficult conversations where people might not be on board and and build opportunities for them to come along with the commission in this work and the learning and help advance policy in this area
0: Yeah, I read. I thought what was an interesting approach of you. How do you make this more attractive, maybe to school boards that aren't maybe even hostile? They just it's not a priority because they're sitting there like, you know what? We got to teach all these other things and teaching climate change based on you know regional impacts and the geography of the area. And so even though there's some kind of national international science standards you want to teach, like really making the the climate change message really relevant at that micro scale.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting to see some places that are that are doing this and and doing this well. There's a new uh, consortium that's been running the past few years called the Resilient School Consortium Program. It's run through the National Wildlife Federation and this is in New York, and what they're really doing through this work is they're partnering schools with local community organizations and and middle school students are learning to assess their local community's risks related to climate change. And they're, they're learning about strategies around building resilience for the community and thinking about how to be problem solvers within this space. So, you know, one aspect of it is knowing kind of that big macro level of what is occurring in climate change, but bringing it down to the local community. And having youth work with local community organizations to help build strategies for them there, I think, is an effective way to get people on board.
0: Okay. And so you'd mentioned some of the things that you want to include in the, these standards or the, what could even get down to the curriculum level is resilience, right? This is the focus of my podcast, adaptation. I'm very encouraged to see that it seems like so much of the climate information is like, okay, here's the, the science. This is what's happening. And you know, and now we need to shift to renewable energy. And it doesn't really, get, get down to the three dimensions of what climate change is all about. So could you speak a little bit more about what you guys are thinking on the resilience side?
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple components to think about on the resilient side. I think there's the instructional component, which we've talked about. And, you know, the risk program is one example of that. There are other schools. There's a high school in New Orleans, Louisiana, where people are taking part in coastal restoration projects. And again, like working with those local communities on that effort. There are efforts in rural Colorado that are again, Really relying on community and school partnerships to think about what are the fire hazards and, and what can the community do in terms of building resilience and preparation for that. But then there are other components that school systems also need to think about in terms of building resilience themselves and adapting and preparing more for climate disruptions. And, you know, I think one example of this, which I think a lot of people have experienced recently is what we've seen with schools in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. And a lot of schools have had to shift to remote learning because of the pandemic. And one of the things that we've noticed is that our school systems are not very resilient to deal with learning disruptions. And our communities are not very resilient either when our schools are dealing with learning disruptions. But we know that climate change will impact our school systems, and we've already seen it occurring across the country, where schools have have had to close for significant periods of time due to extreme weather events occurring. And we need to kind of be more thoughtful about what our schools need to do in preparing for this. Our schools are also major service providers of things like food and social-emotional supports for kids. And we need to be more forward-thinking about Well, as climate impacts are more likely to occur, what are the supports that we need to build into our school systems and how do we need to think about our school policies to make sure that we can be flexible and adapt and continue to provide learning opportunities and services for children, youth and families?
0: Okay. I want to come back to the COVID issue uh, unrelated to what you were just explaining, but I I obviously want to make sure that the adaptation (laughs) section is a big section. I'm going to advocate for that, and I have my listeners that hopefully could weigh in, and I guess this will be a virtual listening tour, so there's going to be opportunities for them to weigh in that way, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One one of the things we want people to do is we want people to share with us their ideas about what schools can do in this area. I think one of the things that we've seen as a problem is there's a, a bit of a lack of awareness about what schools can do, and so the the more that we can bring people into the conversation and share their ideas and thoughts and have that inform the commission's action plan will be very helpful. So we'd love to get input from people across the country.
0: Right. And I would argue that, you know, just adapting to climate change is probably going to be more relevant to probably most Americans than the bigger conversations going around in mitigation, obviously need for those things to happen. But as people are dealing with storms and wildfire, as you know, your local coal powered plant, it's hard for them to necessarily weigh in. So I I would think adaptation is going to be super relevant to a, a lot of people and then jobs of the future. And yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of giving you my feedback right now for the listening tour, but I don't want to see it a paragraph toward the end of the, the standards and don't forget about adaptation. So I think it's obviously it could be a primary driver in it all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we see we see each of these pillars as essential focus going forward. I think. You know, mitigation being one aspect that schools really need to take on, adaptation equally being as important an aspect that schools need to take on, education being a critical aspect that schools need to take on. And our last pillar of focus, which kind of runs through the entire work of the commission, is that ensuring that when we're in this moment and we're taking this work on, we're focusing on how... To leverage policy to advance equity. I think, you know, one of the things that we know, both in terms of climate impacts as well as things like infrastructure for schools, there's a lot of inequity that's currently in place. But what while we're at the start of this effort to really focus on transitioning schools and building resilience, coming at it with a lens where we're ensuring that we're prioritizing communities that have all too often been left behind in the conversation, is is going to be critically important to the commission taking this forward.
0: There are ways to get students to learn certain things. And I I think of different subjects, they have different, there's testing. So maybe you can't force, and that's not language you're going to use as part of this commission, I realize this, but you're not taking that regulatory approach. But the SATs, the GREs, these are tests, They come up and there's basic math that you have to understand. There's basic English and there's no way that you get around it. And so the schools really want to teach those things. And so an approach where you're embedding yourselves in these national standardized tests is is that something that you're talking about? Is it is it even part of the situation right now?
1: So there are science assessments that are aligned to the science standards that states are teaching across the country. And so there is the ability to assess students on their science knowledge. Now, that's more broad than just thinking about their knowledge around climate change in particular. And I have not done a look to kind of see if that has been Segmented anywhere, but that is something that I'm sure people could do. And I'm actually wondering, there are some international assessments that might be able to do this better there. Every several years, there's something called the PISA that's given across to students across the, across the world and it measures different components. And I don't know if the PISA in particular has a cross cut where it can look at climate literacy across the world, but, but these might be spots where you could get some of that information about what, you know, how climate literacy is going across the country. I don't know if there would be kind of credentials that could be possible too. I know some people have floated the idea about having component of graduation requirements be related to demonstration of knowledge on these issues, or you could graduate with a particular credential or focus on sustainability. But these are other ways where you could kind of integrate it in where it wouldn't necessarily be an assessment given to everyone, but it might be an opportunity to incentivize students to go in a particular area or a particular field if they could get some sort of additional credentialing as a part of their education system.
0: I'm aware that not every student goes to college. In fact, a lot of students go to college, and so I would have imagined that schools would probably change a lot of their curricula if they were targeting their education for those kids that were going to college. And hopefully, everyone would benefit by changing that that curricula.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, and I think it, and there are going to be ways of thinking about this in different programs. Career and technical education programs are really an opportunity to try and think about this stuff more deeply as well in terms of thinking about the jobs for the future and what we are putting in career and technical education programs to help support people to be everything from, you know, emergency responders to solar technicians to, or solar installers to wind turbine technicians to to thinking about other jobs that might increase as a result of climate change, and especially those adaptation jobs that are out there.
0: Well, yeah, and the GED2 would be one of those really important tests that if you can get that embedded. And, you know, I, I think about like the the SAT and, I'm sure, and, and how much math you have to know to do well on that. And the vast majority of us aren't going to ever use that math. But if you think, oh, instead of math, maybe they should have focused on civics and, you know, how governments work and those kind of things. I and mean, you need that standardized information and climate change. Gosh, they could just serve the <laughs> society so much better in the sort of basic information that we really prioritize. But all right, I get off my soapbox for a second there.
1: Well, one thing that's really interesting to think about, too, is is kind of not even just the specific knowledge, but really what are the skills that people need to be able to have and thinking about one of the things that you talked about in terms of civics. But on the I believe this was the PISA that came out too. one of the things that Americans tested kind of poorly on compared to other countries was the ability for students to distinguish fact from opinion. And that is a skill that's not, you know, a content area subject. But if we started to think more about what are those skills that we need? How do we think more about problem solving? How do we think about supporting students in terms of being able to differentiate fact from opinion? These things would go a long way across a lot of these issues that we care about, too.
0: So this is a tough one. But you must realize how polarizing climate change still is for a lot of people. And so the notion of teaching our children things about climate change this whole commission that you're on, this whole initiative, K-12 Climate Action, could easily become polarized or get a certain reputation, even though you guys are doing all the right things and you're saying the right things and this is no like top-heavy approach. But are you on the lookout for that? And I, and I say this sort of a jest, but I'm actually quite serious, too.
1: Yeah, you know, I think we are on the lookout for that. I think it's one of the reasons why we're taking a broad approach to what we're thinking about in terms of K-12 climate action, that it's it's bigger than just teaching climate change in schools and it's considering all of these components together is one thing that's, that's really important. But we also think that we're at a, a really critical moment right now, and uh, it's not a time to be scared. It's a time to take action. And I think thinking about how to push the conversation forward is is essential, even in spite of potential hurdles that might lie ahead.
0: Right. And if you look at topics like sexual education or evolution there are actually very well-funded opposition groups that are attacking trying to teach those things to children and uh, that you already see some of those things uh, you know kind of coming up for climate change and so i i guess just be don't be naive about how strong the opposition is going to be to what you're doing even though you're doing it in a civil very open way there's folks out there that'll play dirty you just sit they're out there
1: yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen looking at some of this work is that that's already going on. There are state legislators that are trying to strip climate change out of the curriculum. There's a lot of that effort that is going on. Um, and I think, you know, you have two options. Your option is to just try and stay quiet yourself to prevent other people from coming out against you, or you can try and figure out a way to bring more people in. And I think we're certainly not naive about the challenges ahead, but we really want to try and focus on ways to bring more people in, especially since this issue does pull well in terms of parents wanting their kids to learn about it and trying to think more about how we're framing it in terms of Jobs and the economy and local needs and local preparedness and local resilience. And so trying to focus it there.
0: Yeah. And what you, it sounds like the approach that you're taking, very open, very transparent. That's what you need to do right now. But when you guys get past that listening tour, you're getting there with the recommendations. It's then the, what's the next phase and hopefully engaging with maybe parent activists or folks more at the local level that you, it's not necessarily part of your group. But they can kind of take that, I guess, that more difficult fight down to the local level and tap into what you guys did through this process.
1: Certainly. And that's that's our goal behind building a coalition alongside of the work that we're doing with the commission is we really want to bring in organizations that have different perspectives, bring in people that have different perspectives that really want to, when this action plan and policy recommendations are released, can find their own space within their organization to try and push this work forward. And that's why we think it's important to get those, you know, grassroots parents groups involved as well as get groups like the National Teachers Unions involved and the PTA and and some of those organizations so that that they can act on the recommendations once they come out.
0: So you've sort of touched upon this uh, a bit, but again, I hopefully this will be feedback that you hear from people is that as with a lot of things, you know, there's an income inequality gap between different sectors of society and you could easily have a climate education gap you know well look portland oregon they've got a great program but you know this state over here has a terrible one and it, it only accelerates and sometimes the more people learn and it, which is a good thing but it actually drives wedges between people if those other people aren't learning the sort of the same things which you know this is science is you know i'm sure that's on your radar but that obviously is probably a big concern that, you know, you just have uneven pickup of climate education.
1: Yeah. And I think that is something that we would certainly see take place across the board right now if because there's a lot of kind of momentum for school districts to start thinking about it. And you could imagine a school district, for instance, that has the money to be able to afford electric school buses, which costs more upfront. They are going to make that effort to do that transition now. And other school districts where things might be further behind, they're going to end up getting the old diesel buses from the community that could afford revamping to an electric school bus, for instance. What we think is the potential of the work right now is that that kind of spreading of the haves and has have-nots has not fully taken hold in this issue yet. Um, A lot of schools have not started this transition and this forward thinking process. And so if we come at it right now with many of these national organizations that are doing this work across the country and think about, well, how can we use this moment to advance equity? How could we think about recommending policies around school infrastructure that really target communities of color and low-income communities that that have been left behind too much? and really use this as an opportunity to support those communities and and have things be locally driven to accelerate this work. We're hoping can try and reduce some of those inequities that you might otherwise see in a transition that, that is not thinking about equity at the center.
0: Right. It's a subject that just calls out for national standards, but national standards have come with their own baggage that could create all sorts of problems. But, you know, again, 10 years from now, you know, you have half the states that are doing really well on climate education. The other one's made no progress at all. That's just going to create national friction. It's just, it's definitely, I mean, that's why you're here, right? You're here to try, try to prevent that, but I could just see it happening.
1: It's tough. It's, you know, it's the way that our system has been developed. And the hope is that you can kind of think about the right incentives to be in place for everyone to see their opportunity to get engaged in this work. So, Again, I think, you know, thinking about whether it's the jobs angle or whether it's the resilience angle that can really bring bring people along to take this issue on and address it in their own way is what we certainly hope is being the potential.
0: All right. So let's circle this back around to the your initiative, the K-12 Climate Action Initiative. I have listeners. What can they do? What What do you recommend that they do now? They're listening to this. And w- w- what's next?
1: Well, I would certainly recommend you come to k12climateaction.org and join our coalition. Um, one of the things that we ask if people come join our coalition of people who believe schools should move to climate action is we ask them to tell us what they think schools can do. And so we'd love to hear from folks about what they think schools can do. And one of the things that we'll be doing is, is as this commission goes on is we're working to elevate best practices. So if folks are seeing something in their community that our commission should be aware of, we'd love to know that too. And so both to share your ideas about what schools can do and also to tell us what you see schools doing is going to be something that's really helpful. And we'd love to have folks just come along on this learning tour with the commission as well. So if you join the the coalition of organizations, we'll send updates around these listening sessions, and we encourage people to come and hear what folks are saying and learn along with the commission.
0: Fantastic. All right. So my last question, and I asked this of all my guests, is if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be?
1: Ooh, one person to come on the podcast. I, I would say... I think you should hear from some students that are doing this work. That's not one person, frankly, <laughs> but uh, actually the the folks at New Harmony High School in Louisiana might be interesting to connect with. They, I think, there's one of their teachers actually has a podcast, and they might be able to help identify some students uh, that could come and talk about the importance of this issue and what they're seeing in their community and how they're how they're working to get it done. I would. Certainly recommend hearing from students about this work.
0: So do you have an in there? Are you connected with them?
1: I do. I have a connection with a teacher from there.
0: All right. So now that actually would be really cool talking to the teacher and maybe a few students just kind of on the ground what's going on. People would love to hear that. So great recommendation. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. This issue is near and dear to my heart. You know, (laughs) we need to educate the public about climate change. But, you know, I think it's like you said, it's tied in with basic civics, understanding how societies work and how governments work. It's all tied in together if we're going to kind of approach this the right way. So I really appreciate what you're up to with this initiative. And maybe we do a check back in in six months or something. Let me know how the listening tour went.
1: Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for elevating these really important issues.
0: Hey, Adapters. Joining me is Mihiro Shimano. Mahiro is interning with me this fall semester. I want to introduce Mihiro to my listeners and let you guys know what an awesome job she's doing. Hey, Mihiro. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. Well, I've had interns before, and it's always such a pleasure that you guys are stepping up and, and helping out with America Adapts. And so I appreciate you reaching out, but let's get a little bit of background on you. So you're a student. Where are you at?
2: So I'm a student. I'm a second year at Northeastern University, and I study international affairs and
0: journalism. That, you know, that's generally, but you you have a big interest in in environmental journalism, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. I recently got into environmental journalism over the summer because I had been reading a lot of just coverage on climate change, climate adaptation, and so I really got into and understood kind of the movement behind environmental journalism.
0: All right. So you're originally from Japan?
2: Yeah. So I'm originally from Japan. I'm Japanese, but I've lived in several different countries growing up because of my dad's job. And so we've moved around a lot. I've attended um, international schools. So I actually only came to Boston my first year of college. So this is actually my second year living in the U.S.
0: All right. Wow. So how's it going being in a university and with COVID?
2: Definitely. It's challenging in some aspects, but in others, you know, it's very laid back, I would say, especially because my school, Northeastern University, we're doing a hybrid program. So you can, you know, go into campus and take your classes if you want to, but you can also take them at home. And I'm actually living on campus. So I'm basically in like the university and interacting with people outside and socially, but also, you know, there's guidelines that we have to follow. I think a lot of people were skeptical before school started, but it's definitely been a rewarding experience in some sense, because you kind of get to build friendships and relationships and like meaningful relationships with others, especially those you spend a lot of time with, for example, the people that you're living with.
0: Cool. Well, I'm glad to see it's working out somewhat in these difficult times. All right. So a little bit of background. You reached out to me and this is always fabulous for me that how did you find the podcast in the first place?
2: Yeah. So there was actually an episode that I listened to. I think it was the episode on you covering the climate coverage of the presidential election and you know the democratic race but that was kind of what sparked my interest in america adapts and so from there i kind of just listened to some of the podcasts that you produce and especially because you know climate podcasts are within the genre of climate journalism and so i was just listening to some of them and you know learning how what climate adaptation was exactly and also like what kind of people are working in this field which is really interesting
0: okay if that episode just so if people are interested Samantha Montano she was the disasterologist and so she was assessing the various plans and yeah that was a fun episode to do well, when you first started, and you actually haven't been working that long, you know the semester just started, we were brainstorming on, on what you could do. There's all sorts of things that I've had interns do before. But what are you doing specifically for American Apps?
2: I started with Use and Newsletter. The newsletter kind of was a platform, I guess, to build a community for climate adaptation um, and discussions on that, as well as promote the podcast, um, which is like a little bit, we include that a little bit in the beginning, but the main part of the newsletter is highlighting other climate podcasts, highlighting um, some news on climate adaptation um, work that other people are doing, as well as webinars and stuff like that. So. I kind of wanted to start this newsletter, or I pitched this idea to you, because I had seen a lot of newsletters in terms of journalism, like newspapers, sending out newsletters. And it's really a big thing nowadays. And everyone, you know, has these newsletters that you can subscribe to. And they're either daily, weekly, or whatnot. And, you know, you can read about it in a short amount of time, which I really enjoy. And especially with podcasts because they're audible or you listen to them on an audio. So when people are you know notified that there's a new episode, then they're probably more likely to go and listen to it or just learn more about it via the newsletter, which I think definitely we've been trying to do as well with the newsletter.
0: Folks out there, M- 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 here has done an amazing job. She did all the sort of background research. I had been wanting to do a newsletter for a while, but it just never had sort of the wherewithal to kind of do it and so we've had two editions and we'll have a third because we have a, an upcoming guest and we've been publishing them every two weeks and here does the vast majority of the work and as you'd mentioned we, we, we highlight climate podcasts because you know it's a, it's a chip on my shoulder that there's so many newsletters out there that talk about webinars and all these other sort of resources but very few of them actually mention podcasts and they are great resources. So we, we made a point of trying to <laughs> highlight not America adapts, but other climate podcasts.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay. And so if you're interested in subscribing to the newsletter, you can go to the website and we will just probably keep sharing it on social media. You know, it's just slowly but surely. And if you are a subscriber, please consider sharing it within your own networks. And um, we, we also looking for material. You, Think about the work that you're doing maybe there's some stories or projects you want to tell it's easy enough to kind of add a, a short piece on that so we're encouraging my my listeners to do that so that's great here's done an amazing job i'm so happy i get her i i hope knock on wood for the, the rest of the semester working on, on the newsletter but I, before you know we kind of wrap up i want to talk about just some of the work that you're doing you know you're an environmental journalist but you've written quite a bit. Do you want to share just a few pieces? And then I, I think you're also working on a podcast. But what is some of the actual writing that you've done?
2: I'm actually involved, as a lot of journalism students are, in the school newspaper, which is called the Huntington News. I contribute to their newspaper by you know, writing some articles of things that happen on campus, things that happen in Boston um, and things like that. But I also am writing for a online magazine called The Global Observer, which is also based at Northeastern. And this magazine is based looking at the U.S. and U.S. universities and institutions from an international student's perspective. And so I think that's a very valuable perspective. Um, and we um, some of the work that I've done or writing that I've published are how the Black Lives Matter movement that you know, occurred in during the summer spread through Asia or the or also schools that opened up universities that opened up in Japan and how the because they opened in the spring. And so how universities in the US could look to them to see how it you know, how it works and how students are adapting to the COVID situation and things like that. So there I've written a variety of pieces and I continue still to write for them.
0: Well, you do great work. You are just a sophomore. I just imagine, you know, four or five years out of school, you're going to be just in the thick of doing some amazing work. So I, I'm very impressed with what you've done so far. I'm very lucky to have you. Okay. And before we sign out, you're involved with a podcast too. That's very cool. What's the podcast?
2: Um, yeah, so the podcast is called the Universal Blueprint. Um, and basically it's, we create the podcast for the United Nations Association chapter at Northeastern. And briefly, we focus a lot on the sustainable development goals that the United Nations have put out there for 2030. And we, um, each episode, we look into one SDG and invite a guest to talk about their work in the SDG and also like their work itself and where the goal is currently. And how it's kind of looking to project in the, in 2030. So it's very international affairs based,
0: yeah. And if people are interested in actually listening to some of the content, is it in all the sort of normal places you'd find a podcast?
2: Yeah, so we're under the radio station WRVB um, at Northeastern University, but yes, it's on Apple Podcast um, and Spotify.
0: All right. So we'll include links to that in the show notes, you know, make people's lives easier. OK. And I'm going to ask you what I ask all my guests. If you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? Um,
2: <laughs> that, that's a tough question. I think one person that I would really like to see on America Adapt is Ed Markey, mm-hmm. Senator Ed Markey for um, Massachusetts. He co-authored The Green New Deal. And he has been working for, you know, he's been, he's been advocating, sorry, he's been advocating for the environment. And I think the Green New Deal is a very, you know, big thing that climate journalism and the climate uh, world is, you know, talking about. And so I think he would be a really interesting guest to have on your podcast.
0: That's a great idea. He just won his primary. I know it was a kind of hard fought battle there. And I actually got to meet Ed Markey. I saw him at an airport and I went up to him when I was working. Yeah, at the National Park (laughs) Service. And I invited him to come visit the Everglades because I was part of the climate change response program and I knew he's very big in climate change is a house representative so yeah he's always been a hero of mine that's a great idea that i should get him on for just a much longer discussion but uh, that is a great and it would be a real treat to do that So great suggestion all right Mahir, i'm gonna let you go uh, again thank you so much for volunteering with america Daps. it's just fantastic the newsletter i'm thrilled with we're on the second edition i am sure we'll hear from you again especially if people are reading the newsletter but thanks for coming on
2: Yeah.
0: Thank you so much again. Okay. Adapters. That is a wrap. Thanks to Laura for coming on the show. What she's doing is so important. We just take for granted on what is being taught in schools. It's a huge opportunity to educate today's children and future students on the climate issue. We can't let it become this hot button issue in classrooms like evolution. We've already seen signs of this. Hopefully K-12 climate action can include the right partners to make sure everyone feels represented in this process. But they also shouldn't shy away from how important this type of education is. Future generations are going to count on today's citizens being better informed about climate change. And that starts in the classroom. And on that note, don't forget to check out podcast in the classroom that we're doing. We've developed some discussion guides for specific episodes using your class with your students. Also, with a huge transition to online learning due to COVID-19, consider using podcasts. Or students, ask your teachers to use podcasts. You can find the discussion guides on my website at americadaps.org. Okay. So if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America dApps, and yes, this is different than Sympatico, think about using a podcast. I've worked with many partners before World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, MIT, UCLA. The trustees, maybe you want to tell your story via podcast, reach out, let's partner. Also, I do presentations to classes and keynote presentations at conferences. I know we're all taking a break from those at the moment, but feel free to contact me if you're interested in having me speak at your event. So most of you have heard me talk about the work I'm doing at Simpatico Studios. Well, folks, that is full steam ahead. I'm hosting live talk shows. On the Climate Adaptation Channel, I've recently passed 150 interview mark on Sympatico. I'm interviewing climate adaptation experts, clean energy entrepreneurs, and academics from around the world. If you're a professional in the space, maybe we can have a conversation about the important work that you are doing. And we're also encouraging you to just come check things out, come watch a live show and join the community room. Browser is behind a firewall. So reach out to me or go to simpatico.com. And that's with a -A C-C-I-M-P-A-T-I-C-O.com and put your information in and you'll get directions on how to get into a show. And yes, it's free. We want you to just check things out and see what Simpatico is all about. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. I'm at USAadapts. Definitely check it out. And definitely tweet at me. If you listen to an episode and you enjoyed it, well, I love getting tweeted at. So tweet at me and I will definitely retweet it. And don't forget the Facebook page community room. There's conversations going on there. I definitely encourage you to be part of that. Okay. I love hearing from you. I mean it. I get random emails all the time and it's always very exciting to hear just who's out there listening to the podcast and some of the cool things that they're doing or what they like in the show or even recommendations for guests. So please definitely reach out to me at americadaps.gmail.com. I truly do love hearing from you. Please send me an email. Don't forget to check out that website again at americadaps.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.